The Premiere On Podcast is brought to you today by our friends at Java Remix. Java Remix is the perfect blend of 100% organic Arabica coffee infused with nano-emulsified CBD. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is fast gaining a reputation as a remedy to treat everything from anxiety to depression, inflammation to acne. And now it's available in your morning cup of Java. Go to javaremix.com right now and browse through their available products. Java Remix offers traditional ground coffee as well as single-serve K-cups in both regular and decaf. And if you aren't a coffee person, Java Remix also offers CBD-infused teas, bath bombs, and body scrubs. And for our Prove Me Wrong listeners, go online right now, that's javaremix.com, and enter the promo code PROVEMEWRONG for a 20% discount off your entire shopping experience. And Java Remix also offers free shipping on all orders over $40. Once again, that's javaremix.com. Promo code prove me wrong. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. I'm Pete Lieb. I'm your host tonight. I'm glad you're here with me. My guest tonight is Mr. Alan Pease. And Alan and I are going to talk about body language tonight and body language training, what your physical actions may be saying to others about you and how you can turn that around and read the body language of others and use it to your benefit. Alan and his partner and wife, Barbara Pease, are two of the most successful relationship authors in the business, and they've given seminars in 70 countries and authored 18 best-selling books, including a few I think I need to read like Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps, uh, The Body Language in the Workplace, The Body Language of Love, and The Definitive Book of Body Language. Alan's been involved in research and application of body language for basically his entire life. We're going to talk about that tonight. You can find more about all of Alan's books, ebooks, and audiobooks on peasinternational.com. And Barbara Pease is also providing online coaching as well, peasinternational.com backslash coaching. So once again, all the way from the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, where it's already tomorrow, I'd like to welcome Alan to the show. Hey, Pete, glad to be here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I know we did a little bit of talking before the show, but for the listening audience, could you start us off at the beginning and let us know how you got started with body language and when did you start incorporating it into your life? Well, for me, uh, began back in the 1950s. My father was the local country insurance agent for Eagle Star Insurance, and they used to collect the premiums at night and on the weekend collect them by hand because there are no checks or credit cards. Mm-hmm. And that's how they prospected for new business. They could tell from the local roles who lived in the houses and who the neighbours were. And so he'd regularly take me with him because he was a young guy knocking on doors, trying to present for more insurance, and often there only women at home on their own, so you couldn't get in. So he'd take me as a kid. With a kid, yeah, you get in. Right. And uh, and if they wouldn't let him in, he'd say things like, would you mind if Alan uses your toilet, please? Or uh, could Alan have a glass of water? So I spend my nights and weekends being in people's toilets all across southwestern Australia and drinking glasses of water. But I got to sit around table listening with listening to Dale Carnegie on 78 RPM records at night because mm-hmm. uh, the insurance guys of the 50s were the cutting-edge guys. And, and I learnt things like uh, that you can look at people and figure out what could be going on in their mind, uh, how to make people your best friend because... Uh, you know how to win friends and influence people, which is Dark Cunningham's title. Right. And you could do well in business. So all my life, from the time I was a kid and at school, I always had a job at night and on the weekends. 
selling something. And the ability to read body language tells you when to speak, when to shut up, when to hold back, uh, when to present, uh, when time's right and when it's wrong. Uh, and, it, and that happened for me right through until I became an adult. I was a super salesman here in Australia. I used to win everything. And they get me to talk about how do you, how do you sell so much? And uh, part of what I talked about was being able to assess what someone's intentions could be by the way they behave. And I put that into a book by 19, 1976, which I just called Body Language. Uh, I figured if I sold 10,000 copies of this, it would be amazing. And we've written another 17 bestsellers since that time. Like any new language, then, you kind of learned through immersion, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat. You, that your, your father just kind of dropped you in the situation, allowed you to listen, allowed you to watch and see uh, how people were going to react and, and kind of get a feel for they, uh, you know, what was going to come next. How would you recommend that people who are just now starting, maybe they're picking up your book for the first time, how would you recommend that they start to be able to ingest and apply what they're reading in your book? A number of ways of doing it. First is to understand that when you're face-to-face, which you and I now are technically, 60 to 80% of all the impact of the message being sent right now is done non-verbally by gestures, movements, expressions. So it's the major part of our communication and it shows what a person's feeling. So when you're reading body language, you're really just reading their emotions. And a simple way to to test yourself and this is watch TV and turn the sound off. So you've got no sound, then you're like a hearing impaired or a deaf person that, that you're in that same position where you have to figure out what's going on. Or better still, watch foreign language television where you don't know the language. Right. And pretty quickly you'll realise that without any language, you'll know what's going on between people because the biggest medium being projected is non-verbal, 60 to 80 percent. The next medium that's been projected is, is tone of voice. So even if you watch foreign films with the sound up, you can still pretty much work, work out what's going on, even though you don't understand the language. So that's a really effective way to do it. Uh, another time is, you know, is to go to an airport. Not a good time now because no one there, but under right. normal conditions, if you go to an airport, you've got people showing every range of emotions, happy, sad, angry, despair, joyful, pride, confidence, negativeness you can see every emotion just by sitting there watching people and looking at how they interact you'll be surprised how much you can already read of this if you're a woman uh, you're pretty good at doing most of it anyway for guys it's it's a little bit more of a struggle to get it than women because our brains aren't wired in the same places to read them as, as women are so put yourself to a test of getting your mates your friends with an iphone and film you and some of your buddies interacting with people as you normally would at work and then play it back a week later with the sound off as a test case in a training meeting and get everybody to say, well, what do you think I was feeling or thinking? And you'll be surprised and sometimes shocked where, where you thought you were making a good impression coming across really well, but they say, oh, you're really angry there. You're really uptight about it because we don't really know how we look Pete, until we see ourselves on a video. And we hate seeing ourselves on the videos for reality. So right. using it as a workshop, filming yourself is a great way to do it as well. So you mentioned just for a moment, you kind of touched on the difference between men and women. And I don't think we're breaking any any new ground here when we talk about, you know, there are millions of books written and men are from Mars and women are from Venus and that we aren't the same. Can you put into words some differences between men and women in regards to how they pick up that nonverbal communication? And then how can a man uh, improve? Because women, I, I would assume, are pretty good at it. How can a man improve in his communication skills to understand his wife or his, his significant other. Well, yeah, and that's right. The biggest single problem in the world right now in communication is, is 
the differences between men and women communicating and figuring out what's going on because men and women talk in totally different modes. Now, this is definitely not politically correct because it's very fashionable and popular, <clears throat> particularly in the United States and Western countries like Australia and the UK. It's popular to pretend to each other that men and women think the same way. And then if you have any experience with them, you know that they just don't. Right. They, they think differently, not, not better, not worse. They think differently. And, and you want different because you don't want to wake up every morning and have to look at you and talk to you. You, you want something different. Uh, you have to come up with three simple rules. And we, we wrote that book, Why Men Don't Listen, Women Can't Read Maps, which in fact was our biggest selling book, nearly 15 million copies, based on brain scans that show how these things operate in the brain. Biologically correct, politically incorrect, no doubt about it. First thing is to understand that male brains, now when I say male brains, I'm talking about doesn't necessarily mean that's a man. Three out of five men will fit this, this spec pretty clearly. Uh, one in five is kind of halfway there. One in five is more female brain. So you look like a guy, but you think more in female terms. It doesn't mean you're gay or bisexual. There's a bigger chance it could be the case, but you're, you're probably a straight guy who thinks more in female terms. Uh -huh. And that's about the rough percentage of how it works. With women, it's the same. But three out of five women look like women. They have two uh, X chromosomes. And their brain is wired for female interpretation of the world. One in five is the opposite. They think like a guy. They look like a woman, think like a guy. Very dynamic combination to have in business today. And the other one in five, which is hard to spot the ones in the middle. So when I say him or her, uh, I'm talking about uh, female and male brains, not necessarily bodies, even though the majority of them will be bodies. So simple okay. terms. Male, male brain is what we call monotract. Uh, you picture that in your head, Pete, every part of your brain is like a series of rooms. Every room has one skill that works real well on its own. The connecting cord that connects your left to right hemisphere uh, is around about 30% thinner in connections than it is on female brains. The female brains have much more information going from left to right brain, giving female brain people what we call multitasking ability. This means they can probably do between two and four simultaneous unrelated tasks on the telephone or typing a... a, a <clears throat> an email to someone while listening to someone on another phone call and watching the guy out in the front at the post box. They can do all that at once. Uh, male brains, however, don't operate that. We operate on what we call monotracking. Monotracking means we do one thing at a time. <laughs> Every woman listening to this has heard a man say, hey, look, don't talk to me. I'm trying to drill a hole in the wall. You know, I can't drill a hole. Like We say to women, if you really want to upset a guy, uh, talk to me while he's, while he's having a wet shave. He'll cut himself for sure. He can't shave and listen to what's going on. Now, that being the case and understanding that that's how the biology works, if you're a woman and you want to convince a man or a male brain person, you give them one thing at a time, leave a little pause, and then give him the next thing, leave a pause, because that's how men communicate with each other. So when men all talk together, as you know, but we don't all talk at the same time. There's only usually one guy talking, and the other guys are sitting there with a blank face, listening, making grunting sounds. Mm, 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 right. Uh -huh. You know, when you get women all together talking, they all talk at the same time. And if you look at the brain scans that we performed and why men don't listen, you'll see why that's the case. Because female brains have the ability to speak and listen simultaneously on unrelated subjects. So when they're all talking at the same time, women cop a lot of flack from men. They say, listen to those women, blah, 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 blah. No one's talking. No one's listening. But that's not true. If you look at the brain scans, you see that they're all listening whilst talking at the same time, which for men is an impossible concept. And so strategy for men then, if you want to be persuasive with women, number one thing you must do, you've got to talk. Now, what happens when a woman talks, a man normally stops talking because he wants to give her his turn. And she right. thinks, oh, he's a bit sulky or doesn't like me because he's not talking. You've got to talk. Now, you won't understand what's going on when you do this, but it doesn't matter. She'll think, I like this guy because he's joining in. 
So that one simple difference of giving men one thing at a time, and when you're presenting your case or ideas to a woman, uh, talk at the same, you must talk. And, and what a man will do is if you're talking with another guy like, like you and I are talking now, uh, if you started to talk over the top of me, that would be aggressive from male behaviour. For women, that's seen as inclusive. Hey, she's with us. <laughs> now, here's the problem. You get in with a guy. I was watching a guy this morning with four women, and they're all standing socially distanced, and they're all talking, and they're drinking, and the four women were all talking simultaneously. And the one guy was standing there with his coffee, and he's going like this. He's moving his head from side to side. Like, he's waiting for a turn, waiting to get his turn, and nothing happened. Because there's no turn with women. There's none. You've just got to talk. They get it. Um, but he was waiting for his turn. It didn't come as a consequence. Now, if you say to the women, how was he in that conversation? They'd probably say he's a bit quiet. He's a bit sulky. Right. No, he was just waiting for his turn. So, well, you know <laughs> what? That, women, if a guy's talking, give his turn. That, that is, um, that's real life right there. Because quite honestly, um, uh, you are absolutely right. If I am sitting or if I'm, watching that's the i told my wife you have to literally say my name if, if i'm watching television or i'm doing something you have to say my name you can't just speak into into the room and assume that i'm hearing it assume that i hear what you're saying and i am yes. comprehending you literally have to say my name first and and yes. have me look at you and and then start your conversation because it will I, I won't hear it it'll be gone so i'm glad that you are saying that there are brain scans that just show that i'm not you know, I don't have dementia. I'm not different. It's just the way my brain works. I appreciate that. You're a normal guy. <laughs> Thank you. So I heard I heard one of your other talks, and you had talked about you've done a lot of training uh, of your methods with foreign leaders in in the past. Can you talk about some of the world leaders that you have helped train in the art of communication? Most I can't because contractually with the privacy, we can't talk about what they do because. Uh, someone who's a world leader or a big corporate leader, if, if it's known that they've been trained how to protect themselves, which you know, many U.S. presidents have been and still are, uh -huh. then it, it detracts from their credibility. Um, <clears throat> probably the most well-known person, I think, that I've been reported on that's widely publicised in the media was Vladimir Putin. Oh. And I, I did the first seminar in 1992 in March at the at the Winter Palace, which was then the seat of power in Leningrad, which became St. Petersburg, for the new 300 politicians. I did it for the brand new mayor, Anatoly Sobchak, who's become a famous figure in Russia since then. He's deceased now, but uh, I did a seminar for him and the, the brand new politicians on how to go in the media like we are now, how to go on television and look okay to the rest of the world because they didn't. They had 72 years of communism and they looked like hard faced. Uh, table banging individuals which you know, they'd be making karate chops saying we want to help you Bob making a karate chop that's like waving your fist in someone's face and saying I love you I <laughs> right. believe it. and the body language overrides it and and on the day we did the seminar at, at the uh, the Winter Palace in St Petersburg Anatoly Stokjak couldn't turn up so he said the deputy mayor will do the meeting and the deputy mayor was Vladimir Putin because Vladimir's first job after the KGB was the deputy mayor of St Petersburg and so he conducted the meeting and he sat in the front row and I can remember him there that day sitting there as I'm talking about things like steepling, which is a gesture where you look like almost like you're praying in front of your body at chest height, but it goes with the word confidence. You're feeling confident about what you're seeing here and experiencing. It's a gesture that you might make. About 10% of people have that in their repertoire. And mm -hmm. but by intentionally making this gesture, as I'm doing now, with fingertips of one hand just touching the other, just below the chin, two things happen. First is you think, hey, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. In other words, it engenders confidence in the, in the viewer. As right. well as a listener, and I saw I saw Putin recently about a month ago, 
being interviewed on something, and there he was, and he was steepling his hands and nodding his head forward as he talked, the same way he did it almost 30 years ago. And he's uh, he's a great student, that fellow. He gets a lot of bad press because in Russia during the Soviet era, a smile forbidden because uh, if you're in the armed forces, which most people were at one time, if you were smiling, you were seen as not being serious about your job or your life. And so we've got this whole generation of younger people, older people now in Russia who don't smile. And to us in the West, when we see them, we think, wow, they're hard-faced sons of bitches, those people. They must be pretty mean. Well, let me ask you this then. Let me follow up about Putin because did you see there was a video? You might have seen it online. There was a video uh, with Putin and there was another world leader there. And I don't know who he was, but he was I think he was presenting a dog to Vladimir Putin, and he picked the dog up by the scruff of its neck, and he's showing the dog around, and he's very proud of himself, and this dog is just hanging there, you know, by the scruff of the neck, and he's just kind of waving it, and Putin is behind him, and you could just see, talk about body language, you could just see the the shock in his eyes. He finally got up and walked over and grabbed the dog, this puppy, from this other guy, and then cradled it and was petting the dog. And I thought, yeah. wow, if that doesn't tell you something about the man, the way he, he treats an animal, you know, the way he saw, you know, this guy was just, he wasn't holding it aggressively or badly, but it just looked like the dog was uncomfortable. And Putin finally yeah. had to just get up and walk over. Does that kind of track with the Putin that you knew? Absolutely. In fact, when I did that seminar in uh, 1992, uh, my wife Barbara came with me and her father who had been very ill. He was in his 70s. He came with us as well. And nobody spoke English when we were at the Kremlin doing the seminar. And we had to keep an eye on her father because he just got out of hospital and they didn't expect him to survive the trip, but he wanted to go overseas for the first time. And But with all this medication he was on, he had to go to the restroom at least every 30 to 60 minutes. Anyway, we lost him. We lost him in the Kremlin. I was on stage and Barb thought he was with me. And three hours later, there he was in the back of the room. And we, you know, we were absolutely terrified. We thought we'd lost this guy in Russia. Yeah. And he said, no, it's okay. He said, I talked to a fellow and he took me to the restroom. Five years later, we're watching television here in Australia and on the television comes Vladimir Putin, who is now the new president, just been elected president of Russia. And I said to Barbara's father, Bill, I said, Bill, do you remember that guy? And he looked at him and he said, oh, yes, that's the guy who took me to the toilet. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yeah, that fellow, he said, uh, he said, I was asked if anybody spoke English. He's the only one who spoke English. And him and two big fellows with dark glasses took me to the toilet. KGB took my father-in-law to the toilet. And they stood there while he did what he had to do. Then they brought him back out again. And, and, I mean, Putin could have thought, you know, there's some silly old Westerner who doesn't speak English and just give it a miss. But he didn't. He actually took him to the bathroom until he did what he had to do and took him out again. And that was, a, a in my mind, that was a turning point because I, I had prejudiced visions of Putin KGB, which is where he was, and right. most of us in the West had that, but he proved not to be the case. It proved to be the case of what you said with the puppy. Yeah, I I was with you. You know, being being an American, and there's a you you're born with a natural prejudice towards you know Russians or the Soviet Union, yeah. and so we had heard that about him, and that that was the way he is. He's this hard line. He's he's riding bare chested on a horse, and you know and the. And but then I saw that video of him and I said, now, that's who the guy is to me. Anybody who would jump up like that to save a puppy, he can't be all they're saying he is. He just can't be. Um, but let me ask you this then. So you and I are talking right now on Zoom. So you're we're half a world away. Literally, it's Tuesday. It's Wednesday right. night here and it's Thursday morning there. Yes. What what is where's body language analysis going in this new digital age, you know, kids are constantly on their phones. They don't see each other physically as much anymore. What is, what are the opportunities that technology 
has for body for body language and how is it going to change our kids in the future? Well, a couple of important things here. First is that uh, Gen Ys and millennials are, are the first generation to grow up looking at a screen, not looking at a face. Right. Now, I, I'm a baby boomer and my generation and Gen X uh, was raised, taught to look at people's faces. So we kind of figured out from the system by watching people's faces constantly, both younger people under 30 are less likely than their parents and grandparents to know if you're upset with them, whether you're angry, whether you're excited, because they're not seeing the system. That's the first thing. Right. The younger generations are less have less ability to communicate non-verbally for that reason. If you go back in human history, 100,000 years, where there was no language, uh, it was just about all body language and a few sounds, yet everybody seemed to know exactly what was meant and what had to happen. And, and also I can see your whole body. Whereas on a screen now, I'm not distracted by anything around you. I can only see your face. And what I can do now on a screen, and you can do too, we can stare at each other. Right. We can actually look at each other's face close up and look at any emotions. Where face to face, you can't do that. You've got to look away at least one third of the time to be to be non-threatening in conversation. But now in a, in a Zoom situation or Skype situation, which you and I are, our listeners on who are listening on uh, on a podcast can't see us, so they've got the medium of words and tone of voice only there. They're left to make up in their minds what they think we're doing with our hands and faces as we talk. But I'm actually looking at your face and I can study every angle of it and it doesn't bother you because you don't know I'm doing that. Whereas if it was face to face, you'd know it and you'd say, hey, this guy's freaking me out and he's sort of staring at my face. So the first thing to understand is that we can do things with Zoom and with Skype calls and, and FaceTime we can't do in real time. We can stare. Secondly, we're only seeing normally from the chest to the top of the head. Uh, we can't. I can't see your feet or your hands, so I don't really know what they're doing, which re- reveal a lot of clues about your attitude or your intentions. I right. can't see them. So from that aspect, it's harder, but I've got the advantage of being able to stare at your face. So body language today is equally as much, if not more important, than it's probably been in the past because most of our communication, particularly with coronavirus, is on a screen. We're actually looking at people on a screen. And the 60 to 80% impact, of their attitude is still there. It doesn't make any difference. It's just a matter of whether you read it or not. And reading faces is a little harder than reading a whole body because the further away from your brain a body part sits, the harder it is to control it. So you can fake your face, but you can't fake your feet. Well, I know that uh, just using it as an example, my my kids, you know, I have a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, and you're right. I mean, they definitely have a much more difficult time seeing if somebody's angry, seeing, you know, when I'm disturbed and they may not understand that what they just said annoyed me, you know, they don't, they don't get it uh, because they don't have as much face-to-face interaction or as much opportunity, especially with their friends. When I was a kid growing up um, and, and most, you know, again, Gen Xers, if you said something wrong, you knew it immediately. You knew it in the way that somebody stiffened or, you know, even worse, maybe you got popped in the mouth. It happens, but you knew immediately there was immediate feedback. Now, when you don't see your friends or, you know, the majority of your interactions are through text or, or online somehow, one, you get to hide behind the screen and there is no repercussions of, of your actions. But two, you do not like to your point, you don't see that what you just said made me ball my fist. Uh Oh, what's going <laughs> to what's going to happen or what you are. I stiffened physically because of you, know, you insulted me. You just don't even realize it. So it's definitely something that I worry about that our kids are going to be less and less sensitive to the things that they're saying and what those words, then the effect that the words have on people uh, go, and, and not be able to read uh, what the impact is. 
is there any way of, I don't know that there's a way to put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, technology is what it is now. Is there anything uh, coming up that you think that can help that? Or is it just, we're going to have to adjust? Well, well the first thing is with the younger people, uh, we, we do get them in our seminar. Parents particularly will bring their, their uh, teenage kids or young adults to some of our communication seminars. And one of the things that we, we teach them is that you need to be aware First of all, acknowledge that chances are with your generation that you're not going to have the same ability to read people's emotions, therefore know what to do next than say your parents or grandparents did, uh, is to acknowledge it. And secondly, is to teach yourself how to do it. Teach yourself how to read body signals, what to look for. And when you teach yourself to do this, whether it's on a screen like you and I are now, whether it's out in real life, it's real good fun. But you know what you're looking for. It's fun. And in business, we know in business... People don't buy your product or service first. They buy you first. And if they buy you, they feel good with you. They like you. They feel like they might invite you even to lunch. Uh, they buy you. They'll look for reasons to say yes. If they don't buy you for any reason, sometimes they're tiny little reasons we can't even think of, they'll look for reasons to say no, even if it's a good idea. So teach yourself to be able to read body signals. Of course, with the younger generations, you go on a date somewhere. If you can't do this on a date, you're going to strike out pretty bad. <laughs> you're speaking about... Uh, going on a date, there are circumstances when you have to fake it, you know, fake confidence, fake understanding, uh, empathy. How can the average person do that effectively with their body language? You know, sometimes uh, public speaking, some people are just terrified to go up in front of other people and speak. What are some, are there different body poses or, or postures or things like that, that, that you could practice or use that might potentially help you in those situations? Well, one of the new things we discovered in, in the last, dec last decade about body language is that it's cause and effect. In other words, whatever emotion you're feeling, happiness or sadness, where you might cross your arms, lean back a little bit, turn your body away from someone, uh, joy, uh, anger, whatever emotion you're feeling is likely to be reflected and, and visualised in gestures, movements and postures. But the reverse happens as well, Pete. If you intentionally take a specific position or posture or gesture and hold it for only 10 seconds, you will begin to feel the emotions that match it. In other words, you can manipulate your own emotions by changing your body signal. So, for example, if you're going for a job interview in a face-to-face -face or even a, a Skype a video situation, well, let's say it's face-to-face, -face, uh, you're going to be under tension because you want to get it right. You don't want to screw up. You want to get a yes. Right. Uh, but... But at the same time, you don't want to reveal that you're nervous or a little bit uh, upset about it or maybe not confident. You want to show the opposite. So you need to, to fake it. If you intentionally, before you go into that interview, in your mind practice, seeing yourself going into the interview, see yourself going through the motions of introducing yourself to the person and making a great impression, see yourself using all the right signals, your brain doesn't know that's not true so that when you enter that room, your body will act out what it just saw when you were sitting outside waiting to go in. So in other words... Now, the old thing about fake it till you make it, from the bio biological standpoint, that is absolutely true. By intentionally steepling your hands in front of your chest that we talked about earlier and going up and down the soles of your feet as you talk and lifting your chin up. It's just three If you do that on your own, standing in a corner for two minutes, you'll feel like, hey, I've got this together. I can do this. Whereas if, if you're full of fear, you're likely to hunch your shoulders, lean forward, make yourself smaller, and, and you'll reveal fear to others. You'll see you on like, oh, he's a bit frightened. Because we know that employers today are not looking necessarily for your track record or capabilities first for education. They're looking for, do you communicate effectively? Can I put you in front of my staff and my clients and my customers and get them to feel good? And by intentionally 
practicing positive body language and eliminating stuff that doesn't work, you can completely change how people perceive you. That's what we do with our seminars and our business. We teach people what they look like because most of us don't know what we look like. And then we teach them over a weekend to change and add positive things. So by the end of the weekend, they look like somebody different. Now they feel a bit weird. When you change like that, you do feel weird. You think everybody knows what I'm doing, but they don't. How right. do you know? Within 60 days, if you're practicing that, it becomes who you actually are. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Some people, um, before we get into the camera age, they didn't know how they looked. You know, they didn't know how they moved or how they looked on their own or the or kind of the perception they gave off when they were moving. Now people definitely can see that more, can definitely understand a little bit more. And you are absolutely right. I do a, I'm in a band on the weekends as well, and I, I'm the lead singer of the band. And the first couple of times we, we gigged together, Lead singers have to have a certain persona. They have to have a certain confidence and a certain stage presence. And that is not a natural thing for some people. You have to learn it. You have to get comfortable with it. You have to practice it. But you're absolutely right. You know, you know, 60 days, three months maybe, doing this, doing it confidently. They don't know you're not that way. They don't know you're, you're normally not as outgoing as that. That looks normal. And then suddenly it is normal. So I, I, I agree with that. I do want to ask you this question, though. You mentioned crossed arms. I've heard in other pl in other talks, I've heard it both ways. And when I was growing up, crossed arms means you were closing yourself off, you were protecting yourself, you weren't interested in in the discussion anymore. But I've also heard people say, "Oh, it's just a self hug. It feels good to cross your arms." So it's not necessarily that you are being negative; you are just comforting yourself. What have you found with relation to to that pose in particular? All the words we just said is true, depending on the circumstances of how it's used. Now, if you look at it in its basics, when you cross your arms, and just cross yours now, mm -hmm. seven out of ten people have the left arm on top. That's a natural human position, seven out of ten. So now, do I. Try to uncross, reverse, uncross now and reverse the pose. See if you can do it. it. Yeah, it does not feel normal. It does not feel good. It does not right, no. For most people, we can't, we, it seems to be in our DNA that we're born with the ability to cross left on top or right on top. And, and it, we don't believe that can be changed. Now, monkeys and chimps do this as well. So it's primate behavior. And when you look at how monkeys and chimps use it, they use it to protect their heart and lungs from a frontal attack. So if some guy is throwing coconuts at them or is trying to hit them with a rock or a stick, they'll cross their arms in a self-hug position to protect the front. They don't cross over their belly or under their throat. They cross over the heart and lungs. Mm -hmm. So it's a basic protection signal. Now, here's the way it works. If you don't like what you see, hear, or experience, you don't like what somebody's saying, uh, you don't like the environment you're in. One of the gestures that many people will use, they'll just cross their arms on their chest. Now, they'll deny they're being defensive. They go, no, I'm not defensive, I'm comfortable. Well, of course you're comfortable. It matches your attitude. Your attitude is defensive. So when you cross your arms, that feels very comfortable. When you're with all your friends having a great time somewhere, crossing your arms doesn't feel very comfortable at all because it's out of context. So that's the first thing is that it's, it has biological roots, we, we believe. Secondly, that... If you intentionally cross your arms for any reason, such as the temperature, the air conditioning is just conked out and it's getting pretty cold in the room, so people cross their arms for warmth. If you intentionally cross them, because of the cause and effect factor, learning and retention of people in the next 30 minutes with crossed arms goes down by up to 40%. In other words, you put people in a cool room, try to convince them you have far less chance of doing it than if you have it in a room of 21 degrees Celsius, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. So having a room is just room temperature is one degree below is the best learning environment we know that when people are in a colder environment they remember more that's true and they do but they've got their arms crossed they remember how bad it was yeah 
No doubt. Well, okay, so so it kind of so it basically ties into there's context involved, right? So that's like most things. There's some context. Just crossing your arms doesn't necessarily a negative thing. It's kind of the context of the whole discussion or, or process. So that's, well, that's what I'm hearing. Well, there are two serious implications. You're absolutely right, but there are two more serious implications. One is, if you cross your arms for any reason, you will begin to experience the cause and effect. Oh, okay. Arms, you'll begin to feel non-participative. With your arms crossed, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to answer a question. You can just sit back and check it all out. That's the first thing, that you stop talking and become less communicative. And secondly, anybody who sees you with your arms crossed, their brain silently assumes this guy or this person is tuned out so they learn from your repertoire altogether. Don't have crossed arms in your repertoire, full stop. Train yourself out of it because nothing good comes of it. Unless you're trying to show somebody you intensely absolutely don't agree, then you might use it. Otherwise, don't do it. Okay. So only do it on purpose. Got it. <laughs> Train it out. If, if, if you're debating with the opposition and you, just, you want to show you don't agree with them, crossing your arms in a debate with all three of you crossing, that's a great strategy. But in real life, People will exclude you. They won't look at you as long and they won't listen to you as much. And they cut you out because they think you're non-participant and you feel you're non-participant. So you'll never see me cross my arms. I just, I've eliminated it decades ago because once I found out what the impact it was on viewers and on me, I just stopped doing it. Oh, okay. Let me talk about uh, a little bit about lying, Alan. And most people, when they think of body language, they equate it to the art of detecting a lie. You know, and, and there are television shows galore about reading faces and, and micro expressions and cues and looking certain directions. For, for those that are interested, can you give some examples of deceptive triggers and how they are used kind of in context, which would indicate somebody's being untruthful? Well, yes, first of all, there are cult cultural implications here because I'll exclude people in Asia generally, uh, people of Chinese Asian descent, because uh, they will look you in the eye and they'll lie to you. Uh, whereas in Westerners, Europeans, we have difficulty with that. We, we've been raised in a society where if we feel like we're telling an intentional lie, we are compelled to look away for a split time. Or if we're a professional liar, we know to maintain eye contact at all times because hopefully you won't be able to pick up that I'm lying. Uh, whereas uh, Chinese Asians will look you in the eye and lie, but they'll start to move their feet more. So if you're talking to Mr. Wong, and people say, this is this, this discriminatory. No, this is how it works in real life, in real cultures. You want to find out if Mr. Wong's lying, look under the table and check his feet. If his feet are going 10 to the dozen, then maybe you stood up and ask him some questions. Whereas in the case of Westerns and Europeans like you and I, one of the things that we do when we, if we start to tell intentional lies or deceit, we know that hand-to-head and hand-to-face contact increases dramatically up to 10 times the usual frequency. Uh, touching the nose, touching the ears, touching around the mouth. Just hand to, now, here's the danger. And I know what you're thinking right now, Pete. Uh, so if I said to you, for example, Pete, I wouldn't miss your program ever. And I'm rubbing my nose vigorously. Do you believe me? Uh, well, uh, I, to me, it, it comes down to context. Uh, did I ask you something, you know, and are you are you going, oh, well, you know, I I think so. Yeah, you're you're program's great. Yeah, First, you're grabbing your chin in the throat. I'm touching my nose. Oh, well, yeah. Checks in the mail. And, <laughs> uh, oh, you're looking well and healthy. Now, I scratched my nose. We know that more than 90% of people who saw that without awareness would say, oh, I don't think I can trust that guy. Oh, okay. Me. If you said to him, well, why wouldn't you trust him? What did he do? And most of them can't articulate what they saw. They go, there's something about the guy. We don't know what it is, but he just looks a bit shifty. In fact, it's because I touched my nose. Now, here's the danger. 
I might have just had an itchy nose, but I might have had bad breath, false teeth, had garlic. There's all sorts. Of, maybe I didn't shave properly this morning. There's all sorts of reasons why I might have touched my nose. Right. Which means never, never take one signal and say that means something. You've got to look for at least three. We call this a cluster in the context in which you see it happening. So if I just said to you, I always listen to your program and I rub my nose. Well, look, maybe I had an itchy nose. The danger is if you're not aware of this, you might say to yourself, I don't believe him. He's lying because it looked like a lot. Right. Well, let's put it in, put it in a flush for three. So I say, I always listen to your show, rubbing my nose. Uh, great to see you on the air, so squeezing my eyes. I can listen to you all day as I'm drilling a finger in my ear and checking the mail as I pull my collar and look to the, look to the right. Now, with, with a cluster, there's five or six signals there. And if you could pick those up, you could say, yeah, this guy's flying his head off. Where just a single nose touch could mean too many things. But most people instinct, look, doesn't matter why I touch my nose. You will you'll think that I'm deceiving. You'll get a feeling I'm not being straight with you, even though you can't articulate that you saw the nose touch. But it happened, and your brain picked it up. I mean, yeah, I know personally if I'm watching somebody or I ask them a question, and I look at them, and they look off to the side. That's always been kind of a, a, a trigger that we've heard yes. multiple times. So, you know, if you look off to their, I guess it's their right. You know, if you're looking at them, your left. If, is that is that yes. correct? I've always kind of thought, oh, they're lying. But I don't know if that's real or not. I mean, is that a real thing where, you know, uh, yeah, I love your show. I'm looking off to the right. Or where were you at last week? Oh, I was at the movies. And you're looking off to your own right. I was like, well, you, you weren't at the movies. Where were you? You know, Is that, or is that a real phenomenon? Well, that's, that's uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which the left, left side of the brain controls the right side function. The left, right part of the brain controls the left side function. So the theory behind it was that whichever side you're looking to shows you which, which brain you've engaged. Uh, now, of course, with left-hand people, everything's backwards on that one. Uh, I don't teach personally. I investigated it fairly, fairly thoroughly, and it's a pretty popular concept. But I found, first of all, it's a very hard thing to teach because, as you pointed out, your left is my right. So it's hard enough to remember what I was talking about, let alone did you move left or right. Right. If, if you watch it on a videotape replay, well, okay, then you've got more information because you can pre-frame and you can recall. Uh, there's been a lot of studies in recent times that, that seem to indicate that they don't believe it actually works the way it is. But the jury seems to be out on the whole thing. <clears throat> but I, I don't personally teach it because it's, it's a hard concept to get your head around and even harder to be able to do in real life because... Face to face, everybody's left is your right. It's hard to remember what you're talking about, let alone did they look left. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever done any consulting or or examinations in criminal cases where they had you involved in the interrogation to just to see what your feelings were? Yes, back in the seventies and the eighties, particularly nineties, I tended to pull out of it because I got involved with a couple of high profile uh, drug lords here who were in were going to go to court for distributing drugs and. And I got death threats and all sorts. They pulled the gates off my house. And so I decided to pull out of doing that from that point. Prior to that, yeah, I did quite a bit, sitting in court, looking at witnesses giving evidence. Now, that was really interesting for me to do because I had a, a very famous television program here in Australia at the time on how to read people. This is before the lie to me and, and all the other programs that have flooded the, the television since. Right. And witnesses would see me sitting there, the, the, someone's given, as a witness, and they see me sitting out in the stand and they think, oh my God, that's the body language guy. He knows if I'm lying. And, and they start to behave in strange ways if, if they're intending to lie. If they're telling the truth, it doesn't matter. If they're going to try to cover something up, they would think that I'm reading their every movement, which is not exactly how it works at all. I might have been sitting there writing a letter to my mother for Mother's Day. But now they think, oh, he's writing down every gesture. And as a result, it really tripped a lot of people up. Uh, but on the other hand, also uh, 
I think, of clients that I've had in the past who accused of, make, of doing a horrendous crime when, in fact, they didn't. And I had one very famous person I was involved with here in Australia, a woman called Lindy Chamberlain, and she was camping at, at, uh, at Ayers Rock, the famous Red Rock in the centre of Australia. And the story was that a dingo snuck into the tent one night and stole her six-week-old baby and killed it. And Meryl wow. Streep started a movie. They made a movie about this. Meryl Streep. Yeah. It was a big, big case. And uh, she was on television doing interviews about what happened and she just didn't look right. She had dark glasses on. Her expressions didn't match what we'd expect to see. And it was outrage in Australia from women, not from men. Men didn't sort of quite get this, but from women saying there's something wrong here that, that we don't believe what she's saying about a dingo uh, taking her baby. And then they brought in dingo experts who said, no, dingoes don't take babies, which we now know they do. Back in the 80s, they said she didn't. So the bottom line was that when I first met her, she said to me, look, I'm going to go to jail. They're going to put me in jail because they think I did. In fact, I didn't. And I asked her to explain what happened. And I said, look, explain what happened to me. And if you're lying, I'll know it. I won't have anything to do with you. Now, she thought that was true. So she told me what happened. And I believe that the dingo took her baby. I'd never heard of such a thing, but I believe what she said. Based on the fact that her body language made her look guilty. And this is the dangerous thing, that if you don't look like you match the image you're trying to project, people are less likely to believe you. Of course, this is how professional con artists work as well. They put on such a great act in front that we can buy it. And this is what professional actors do. An actor lies to you that they're another character. And if you believe them, you give them an Oscar. No doubt. You, know, you try that in business and they'll give you 10 years in jail. <laughs> well, that's also how a lot of serial killers get away with it. You know, they, they don't have that internal clockwork that the rest of us do that feel shame at, at lying or shame at what they've done. To them, it's no big deal. Yeah, I did what I wanted to do. And they don't feel... And that's really how lie detectors work, right? The same way that, that, that you work on those people when, when they're on the stand and they see you in the background... They start, they start fidgeting. They, they get nervous. They know what you do, and they know that they did something wrong, right? So that's almost a dead giveaway. Just seeing you as their lie detector. Yeah. Uh, but well, yeah, there's well, some. I, I don't have many friends, as you can probably suspect, because <laughs> I think I'm, I'm reading every most move. I, I was recently at a you know, pre-COVID virus. I was at a dinner function, sitting next to a table of executives, an important woman sitting next to me, and she was. I could see she was clearly bored with the whole proceedings that were going on. So I thought I'll, I'll try and spark her up a bit. So I leaned across and I said, you know, I know exactly what you're thinking. I was just hammering yeah. it up, right? And she thought for a second, she turned to me and said, well, well why don't you go there? <laughs> 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 but this is the problem that you've highlighted, that that if you if you look like you committed a crime, we know that there's a more, greater chance you're going to get a bad sentence to be convicted. If you look like you didn't, uh, we tend to let people off and give them lighter sentences. And you see, with O.J. Simpson, for example, uh, the evidence tend to suggest that, you know, the guy probably might have done it. Yeah. But in, when he was in court, he just sat there and you really couldn't see whether he did or not. And he was our tele it was my television hero from the Naked Gun series. And uh, it, it didn't really look like a guy might do this. However, you look at others, other serial killers, for example, or serial killers in general, not other ones. And, and a lot of them just look like ordinary guy. John Gacy, for example. One of the greatest in America is a serial killer, and he was a member of the JCs. He was a senator. I'm a senator. I met the guy. And he was a friendly, lovely, most nice guy you've ever met. Yet he was killing you know, lots of people. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a whole other discussion. It's just just kind of what's broke inside there that allows them to do those things and not have that empathy, and not have that sense of you know I've done something wrong, and it's just not there. It's not in their body language. It's not in their in their facial expressions. It, it, they're they're gone. It's 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 an interesting thing. 
Let me, the last well, couple of minutes. At, Go ahead. Yeah, if you look, if you look at sociopaths too, I, I, I did a study with sociopaths, but an interesting one I did was with people who, in some of the weird off, offbeat cult religions, who want you to join their religion, and they will convince you that what they believe in is the way to go, that their God is the only way to go. And when you listen to some of those people, you can see that they actually believe what they're saying. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is studying the body language of these people is that their body language shows that they're actually telling the truth. And the reason that they're telling the truth and they're showing truthful behavior because they, in their hearts, sincerely believe what they're saying. Yet the rest of us, we don't, we don't believe any of that necessarily. And so we just discount it. But they do look like they know that. Whereas a professional liar is likely to have what's called leakage. They're trying to convince you, but every now and again, a signal will just contradict a little movement of the cheek or a nostril contradict what they said. But people who believe what they're actually saying, even if we don't, it's completely wrong, they still are hard to pick because they look like they're telling the truth. Well, in their, in their aspect, in their standpoint, they are telling the truth. But from our standpoint, our standpoint they're not. Yeah, the con artists to me are, are significantly easier for me to pick out because to your point, I, I, I always tend to find that they, they stand a little closer to me than I want them to be. Uh, they're a little more conspiratorial than I want them to be. And like I said to my daughter, who's 17, I was like, if anybody comes up to you and starts speaking to you and in your gut, you can't put it or words on it, but you can tell in your gut that just something is off about this person. Your gut is right. Mm -hmm. Go with what your gut is telling you. You don't have to be able to, to put it into words while they touch their nose and pull their ear and, and look to the right. Something about the mannerisms of that person is off and trust your gut. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I fully that that is much easier for me to get than the person, the true believer. Uh, what I'm saying is crazy, but I believe it. I'm a true believer, yes. and you and there is no there is no rationalizing with that. There's no discussion. You can't. You're not going to change their mind. It's one of those things where you say, well, I value your opinion, and you walk away <laughs> if you can, and you leave. I have, I have just a couple more minutes, and if I could, I'd like to go real quick to the body language, body language of love, right? If you could give me some examples or people, those guys out there, those hard luck guys who are striking out, can you give me some examples of when someone is or isn't into you when you're on that date? Yeah. Now, now we're, we're going to talk here about in normal times as opposed to virus times where behaviors can change. Right. Uh, well, humans, we're, you know, basically we're, we're, a, we're a primate and we, we're our love and our courtship is dictated by very ancient rules that are hardwired into our heads. So when a man or woman gets together uh, and you want to work out, she, what she's saying, does he like me? And he's saying, well, you know, am I half a chance? Should I, should I take her to lunch, buy her a drink, or should I give it a miss and save the money? <clears throat> First thing that happens when you're with somebody who you really like, uh, we, we go through what's called preening. We try to make ourselves look as good as we can. So your brain says, hey, I really like this person. <clears throat> I want to look really good. So suddenly without without awareness, usually, you'll start to stand taller, your chest will go out, shoulders will go back, and you, you start to look like you're younger. And, and if you're with somebody who you really fancy, you go, wow, this gal or this guy really gets me going here. What, what the hidden cameras have shown is that your face is likely to pull back to remove wrinkles from your face so you look more attractive. This is a really interesting thing if they really are tickling your ivories. Their, their faces become tighter and younger. So we, start, we instantly start to make ourselves taller, more attractive, better. Now, what you're looking for in the other person is signals that show that they like you. So if you're the guy you're talking about, because we know that men are not very good at this. In fact, 96% of all courtship where men and women meet is initiated by women. Yeah. Even if the guy says, oh, no, no, no that's not true. I, I crossed the dance floor and asked her for it. I crossed the bar and asked her for it. No, he didn't do that at all. She sent him a signal to give him the green light, to give him enough courage to cross the dance floor. 
No doubt. It's only sociopaths and those who are non-empathetic will cross the damn floor and play the numbers game. But for most of us mere mortal guys, we're looking for a green light. So we don't want to fail in front of our friends or fail in front of her. So most most impact, most things for in courtship are started by women. Yeah, men don't like the idea, but that, that's the way it works. If you've got a green signal, you've got to run with it. And so you're face-to-face talking with a woman. Uh, if she likes you, she thinks, hey, I think this piece is you know, quite a cute guy. Uh, she'll start to prune. One of the pruning signals you might see is just starts just rubbing her hair, just lightly, just above the ear, above the head. Uh, the ultimate version, she might pull out a brush from her bag and brush her hair. Now she's brushing her hair. She just met you. But things are looking pretty good at that point. <laughs> if she's got a handbag, now handbag's an important cue with a woman, and most women carry some sort of a personal handbag. For a woman, the personal handbag is part of her body. It just doesn't leave her presence. And she will not let any guy that she doesn't like touch that handbag. So if she's moved the handbag and put it between you where you can touch it, that's a pretty sign that you're going well. Now, we don't want to take one signal and say it means something, just like nose touching could be itchy nose. You need at least three. So she's stroking her hair. She's put a handbag in between you, and she's tilted her head to the side. Now, head tiltings, uh, dogs do this as well. And women love talking to dogs. The dogs tilt their head and don't interrupt with solutions, which is what men do. Yeah. <laughs> so she's, she's tilting her head. She's actually exposing the vulnerable side of the neck, which is a submission signal. And what we found is that uh, very powerful women who run their own race also do this with guys that they like, because out of a business role, you're in a, you're in a different social, biological terms it does. And that's why you should never do that in business if you're a woman, because you know, a woman who might be a high flyer meets some guy in business, wants to impress the guy, but she fancies him, and suddenly she's tilting her neck. And if his perceptive picks it up, he thinks, hello, well, I've got her on the go here. And it changes the whole direction of where things are going. So she's tilting her neck. She's brushing her hair. She's looking at you sideways. Handbag's in between. And she's turned her hips towards you. She turns her hips away from people she doesn't like and towards guys she does. And as men, we do the same. We turn our body towards women and people that we do like. We turn them away from those we don't. So when you get a cluster of these factors happening, uh, that gives you the, an indication that you should go to the next step. You're getting green lights most guys are hard are hard pressed to pick a green light. Yeah, well, um, hopefully everybody who's listening right now has their their pen and paper out and they're they're writing those down because because again, guys can only do one thing at a time. So you know, listen to what we're talking about right now. Write that down. Right. <laughs> it, it it'll help you in the long run. That's for sure. Um, yeah. So my final thought then for tonight is if if someone wanted to change what they're doing right now in terms of their body language. Um, but their book order hasn't arrived yet or they haven't had the online coaching with you yet. What is something that they could do just at home, you know, right now in the mirror that you would recommend to improve the perception that they give off and, and even uh, maybe just their, their own personality? Well, as I mentioned earlier at the start when we kicked off, it was that most of us don't know what we look like. We don't know what signals we're sending, what happens we've got. Yet all our friends know because they're looking at us all the time. Uh, the first is, is to... Get some of your friends and say, look, I'm going through doing a body language self-improvement course. Can you tell me, Pete, what are some of the things that I might do that you think are good or some of the things I might do that might annoy you? And so I want you to tell me everything because it's a training course. Right. Ask, just ask a handful of your friends. And if they're your friends, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, but you're always touching the bottom of your nose with your finger. Or you're always scratching under your armpit and things that you probably have no idea you're doing. So ask your friends to critique you. That's the first thing. Secondly, uh, by watching TV with the sound turned off, or watching foreign films and working out what's going on, you can train yourself to be able to see what people are doing and how they're behaving. They give indications about what the theme is about. 
and you can increase your, your ability, your awareness to be able to read real life situations with people rather than TV. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Alan, you t spending the time and, and meeting with me today. Uh, I know, again, we're, we're in the the hour of COVID. We're, we're st still in that point where we can't get too close to each other. I know you have some VIP weekends typically that are scheduled. I know you do a lot of things through the website. Is there anything else that you wanted to take just a moment and plug that you're doing with peasinternational.com at this right now? Yeah, in normal times, we run weekends at our, we've got a conference property here in the southeast Queensland in the tropics in Australia. We do a weekend where we talk about how to figure out what you want in your life and, and communication with people, getting people on site to want to say yes to what you're proposing. Mm -hmm. uh, reading any of our books is definitely a good stuff. Why Men Don't Listen, Women Can't Read Maps that we talked about and uh, Definitive Book of Body, I think, which they're all on downloads through Amazon or through our website at peasyinternational.com. And... Um, the, the main thing about it is to make a decision that you will become a great communicator. If you make the decision, I'm going to become a great communicator, get these tools and they will show you how to do this stuff. And it almost becomes like a secret hidden language that only you know about because you go out into society armed with information. It's almost like having an X-ray vision. You can see exactly what's going on out there. And it's like turning the light on in a dark room instead of banging your foot on the table all the time in the dark. But by reading some of our stuff or coming to our weekends, it's like turning the light and you can see what you've been bumping into. We didn't invent what was in the room, but we turned the light on. Now you can see it, you know, not bump into it again. Well, once again, I really appreciate it, Alan. I think this has been incredibly informative for me. Um, I hope to talk to you again. Maybe sometime we can we can get together again and, and, and do this again. This has been yes, great. Yeah, exactly. I love talking to you here. Rubbing my eyes. <laughs> you know what? I you, You've given me some things to think about. That's not even a joke. I will be watching people's hand motions when, when they talk to me going forward. Just, do they really think I'm interesting? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. So uh, I really appreciate it once again. Thank you so much. And hopefully we can talk to you again soon. So once again, that is uh, Alan Pease. Uh, he is uh, one of the preeminent body language experts in the field and really a lot of good information there. A lot of things for, for you to think about. How are you projecting? What are you giving off? What signals are you giving off to other people? What topics or what things can you do to maybe even improve your own, you know, personal stature, you know, like he was saying, you know, posturing and posing, maybe if um, talking in big groups is hard for you, hold that pose, hold that really that positive pose, you know, hold your fingers up here and, you know, give yourself 30 seconds of it or give yourself a minute of it. And he has found that studies show that this will actually improve your impression of yourself and actually will change your outlook and your personality. And it's like anything else that you do that long enough and do that consistently enough. It's going to start changing your personality and changing who you are. Um, so, you know, a lot of things there in terms of the language of love, talking about helping with some foreign leaders, how we can talk, determine whether or not somebody's lying to you or not. Those are all really interesting things. What are your thoughts on any of that? Do you feel it is getting easier or harder in the current environment if you want to drop us a line, you can certainly contact us through email. It is provemewrongcast at gmail.com. You can also contact us on Facebook or Instagram. Those are our two other platforms. It's just Prove Me Wrong. You can search for it that way. If you want to just hear the podcast itself, we are on Spotify, Stitcher, Tuned In Radio, Apple Podcasts, really anywhere that you find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Like and subscribe to the podcast and you will be notified when a brand new episode comes out. We typically release them once a week. 
you'll, you'll get all the brand new uh, shows as they release. We're also on YouTube. And as the scroll here says, you can subscribe to the Prove Me Wrong podcast YouTube page as well. You'll be notified when you know, these kind of conversations come up, like with Alan here on Zoom tonight. Uh, again, very interesting. Uh, it would be really interesting to have been able to spend some time in, in some of those courtrooms and watching people and watching. It's really a matter of practice, you know, getting out there and looking and watching people. And he had mentioned that as well, watching foreign films or watching films with the sound down and just trying to read what the person is feeling or what uh, message they're trying to send without really saying anything. Uh, that's all incredibly interesting. And before we go tonight, the Prove Me Wrong podcast tonight is brought to you by Zendo Zone Citronella Burners from J.T. Eaton. They're shaped like fearless little bug-repellent tiki gods. So go ahead and let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zone Citronella Burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones. They're perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. They are available now on Amazon.com and at select Ace Hardware stores. So collect them all today. So once again, from my guest, Mr. Alan Pease, PeaseInternational.com. You can also find his wife, Barbara Pease, there as well. She's also offering some online coaching peasinternational.com backslash coaching. This is Pete Lieb for the Prove Me Wrong podcast, and we'll see you again soon. 